This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. Before we get started, let's once again welcome KBURAM 1490 in Burlington, Iowa. It's actually, uh, I believe the market is quad, referred to as Quad Cities. Uh, but I don't know. How do you say hello to Quad Cities? Uh, so I thought I would just sort of pick one <laughs> and say, Burlington, how are you? Burlington, Iowa. Uh, KBURAM 1490. Uh, we, we said hello to them last week, but I believe this is the week they're actually signing on to the broadcast. So always uh, a delight to welcome new affiliates to the program and uh, welcome all of you individually as well. I hope you're uh, safe and warm. You can just uh, smell autumn in the air, right? As of, as about uh, 4 o'clock today, as a matter of fact, 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's, uh, it won't be long before the frost is on the pumpkin, as they say. Hey, uh, of course, everyone is still abuzz about this horrible shooting in the uh, Washington uh, Navy Yard that happened uh, last week, claiming 12 uh, people. Uh, but here's an interesting email that's going around that I received, courtesy of our good friend Nelson Thal, who joins us here in the program from time to time. I just thought I would share this with you in the early going before we uh, get kick-started here. So, you know when a shooting is government-staged when? The shooter is former military. The shooter is a mental health patient of the military. The shooter was taking psychiatric medication. The shooter has top-secret clearance. There are multiple unknown shooters. How many times have we heard that? Uh, Not only in this case, but uh, in in many, many cases. We hear the initial reports, more than one shooter, uh, and then we don't hear about it again. There are multiple unknown shooters. Only one shooter is caught and blamed. The shooter could not have succeeded without help. The shooter is killed before he can be questioned. The shooting is at a contained government facility. The government is running active shooter drills. Sound familiar? The media jumps all over the story at once. The politicians have legislation ready to pass instantly. The guns involved are exactly what the administration or the legislatures, legislators want to ban. Uh, and then it's 
and then it says updated add your own in the replies and the list is growing i guess as this uh, email goes round and round thank you for that nelson thal uh many of those things do sound eerily familiar like yes i've seen this movie before and i know how it ends well that's a particularly tragic example of course uh, but, but many of us uh, are in fact uh, beginning to sense that there is something terribly wrong with this picture uh, you may call it high strangeness, uh, if you will. And uh, in fact, I just want to crib here uh, from a, a new book out called On the Edge of Reality. And the, uh, the co-authors are standing by to join me, Colin and Cynthia Andrews, in just a moment. Uh, but I just, I, I just found this very, very interesting. Uh, and they're talking about instances uh, or, or opinions, I guess, on, on paranormal uh, phenomena and how they are on the rise. And uh, they use as the example, it was a poll taken about how many people believe in life after death. Now, of course, while I'm talking about it, I've lost the page. Uh, but it's in the last 40 years, the number of people, for example, who believe in life after death has just grown by leaps and bounds. Now, what is that all about? I think it's something like on the order of 72%. I'm, I'm guessing this was an, a, a poll conducted in the United States. 70% of people now believe in life after death, uh, whereas I don't know what the, the numbers were 40 years ago, but considerably, considerably less. Now, what is that all about? Is that more and more people are now beginning to experience these things? Same thing if you look at the belief in uh, extraterrestrial life or UFOs growing by leaps and bounds. Paranorm other paranormal activity, ghosts and so forth. One has to ask, what is at the root of this? And so, here to help us answer that question are Colin Andrews, a visionary and 30-year veteran investigator of unusual phenomena. He's best known for his work with crop circles. In fact, he termed the coin back in 1983. We will get around to talking about crop circles. Colin is also responsible for discovering the correlation between patterns of radar interference and weather conditions in Australia, where weather modification projects are underway. He's currently involved in investigating consciousness and non-ordinary reality. Non-ordinary reality. I love that. He's the author of eight books, and he is, as I say, co-author of On the Edge of Reality. Colin Andrews, welcome aboard, sir. How are you? I'm very fine, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having Cynthia and I on your show. All right, and now we're going to say hello to, uh, may I call her your better half? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Cynthia Andrews. <laughs> my much better half. <laughs> well, as I always say, you know, I, uh, people meet the mighty Aphrodite, I say, yes, I know, I married well above my station. I'm not saying that about you, Colin. I'm not saying that about Cynthia Andrews is a naturopathic physician, energy intuitive, and author of five books, including The Path of Energy and The Path of Emotions. Uh, and uh, Cynthia, welcome to you. Well, thank you very much for having me, Richard. I'm looking forward to the talk. Well, we are going to talk about high strangeness, but we're also going to talk about, um, uh, well, as much as we can get to. I mean, this is, uh, you know, always the challenge. What can you, what can you uh, get done in 50 minutes or so? But we'll, we'll hopefully touch on hidden technology, powers of the mind, quantum physics, a paranormal phenomena, of course, orbs, UFOs, harmonic transmissions, and crop circles. I mean, that's you, you really bit off a lot here in this book. I mean, uh, what, what led you, uh, I guess, along this path in, that, that resulted in this book? Uh, I'll throw that out to either of you. 
Well, maybe I'll just pick that uh, that one up, Richard. Um, it, the unusual uh, began for me as an electrical engineer, which is what I am by profession. I was a senior official in the British regional government uh, in 1983 when I actually kind of just took a ga- casual glance uh, out of my motor car on high ground and saw five perfect circles in a cereal crop. Uh, that's really when my life changed, literally. Um, and uh, this book has come out of very detailed, long, detailed years' worth of research into those crop circles, which, as you rightly say, it was a, a term that I coined in the early 80s. Um, but, you know, as an engineer and working with um, other scientists and engineers, uh, uh, Professor um, uh, Dr. Terence Meaden, I'm sorry, and um, Pat Delgado, a retired uh, uh, NASA engineer at the time, and a light aircraft pilot, Busty Taylor. Uh, we were gathering data. That's how it all began. Uh, looking at uh, the unusual, hearing the unusual on occasions. And what was totally bizarre was uh, the strong impression that something else was very aware of what we were doing. Uh, we would uh, have a conversations which we thought were private uh, between us and uh, points that we would make with regard to what it was we were, had discovered in the fields would then uh, manifest uh, quite the opposite as if it was kind of um, playing back to us that we weren't just that clever and that, that, that they still had or something had some surprises up its sleeve. And, you know, this became more and more bizarre, uh, uh, totally bizarre, when uh, Busty Taylor was the light aircraft pilot flying his aircraft over southern England, very close to Stonehenge on this particular occasion, uh, turned to me uh, as his passenger and said, you know, wouldn't it be really quite something to see all of the circles we've seen to date uh, appear as one, one intricate design? Um, and they were all relatively simple, but they were, um, you know, they were circles straight, three in a straight line, five forming a cross, and concentric rings and so on, all relatively simple compared to what we see today. Um, and there below the aircraft, not anywhere else, but below the aircraft, never as it appeared on the planet before, directly under the aircraft the next day, was exactly that. And so, you know, the research widened out. Uh, a little while after to encompass other subjects because it was very clear that this had a there was a very wide gambit of activity involved in the crop circle phenomena so the book had to be written at some point and it's now 30 years uh, three decades down the road from that a casual glance which started the research meeting Cynthia and her work coming on board and um, you know, it, it was a different side to the same coin is really what uh, it turned out, it seems to have turned out to be. So that's why the book was written, because we just had to, we felt, put this whole thing out there uh, as we had discovered it to be. Uh, Cynthia, let me throw this out to you, because I began sort of the preamble of this discussion, a cribbing from, from your book, uh, On the Edge of Reality. Uh, talking about high strangeness on the rise, and I, I talked about the, uh, the the 2002 poll conducted by the National Opinion Researcher at the University of Chicago, and uh, the life after death uh, question, 72% of those polled believe in it. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you think is behind uh, – and I've seen other polls on, on other paranormal phenomena. And again, uh, this, this is on the rise, this belief. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, I think you hit it exactly on the head when you said it before. More and more people are having experiences, and it's because people are having experiences that that minds are being opened and new new things are happening. And I see this in the field of natural medicine all the time, and in um, you know non traditional medicine all the time. Is that doctors will be adamantly opposed to what we're doing, but their wives are in seeing us every day, and their wives are having experiences, or husbands, or spouses, or whatever are having the experiences and then taking it home, and then slowly um, doctor opinion begins to change and incorporate and integrate and become more more open. And we're seeing the same thing in paranormal phenomenon. Um, people are having experiences. The phone rings, and you know who's on the other end. You're walking down the street thinking of a friend that you haven't seen in 20 years, and you turn the corner, and there they are. And more and more and more people are having this as common everyday event. And so they begin to look beyond the natural, the you know, the conventions of, of social conventions that we have believed in all this time. And so I think you hit it exactly on the head. I guess my question then would be, why is this happening now? The, uh, these, uh, you know, these phenomena have been out there uh, mm-hmm. forever. Uh, why now are we becoming in tune to them? Is there something? Is there a rewiring in our in our brains going on? Or is a is there a uh, uh, is our global consciousness being elevated? Let me just to throw that out that out there, and when we come back, I'll get you to tackle that one. Colleen, uh, Colin uh, and Cynthia Andrews on the line as we discuss their new book, On the Edge of Reality, Hidden Technology, Powers of the Mind, Quantum Physics, Paranormal Phenomena, UFOs, Orbs, Harmonic Transmissions, and, of course, Crop Circles. Stay with us. Very nice uh, a comment on the back of On the, Reg- on the Edge of Reality from uh, the late Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., who just recently passed. On the Edge of Reality makes us, as humans, aware of a new reality that is going to guide our understanding of our place in the universe and that we are all one, including the extraterrestrials who have been observing us for thousands of years. Quantum physics is slowly opening the door to mysteries of the universe and our place in it. It shows that the universe is more mysterious than we imagined and indeed more mysterious than we can imagine. Colin and Cynthia Andrews, uh, my guests, as we discuss high strangeness and, uh, uh, well, many uh, many aspects of uh, paranormal phenomena. And I, I, before the break, I was asking uh, both of you, uh, wh- what's going on? Why are we perceiving, uh, seem to be perceiving a paranormal uh, phenomena at a, at a much greater degree? Is it something to do with the wiring in our brain? Is it to do with the electromagnetic activity in the uh, around the globe, what 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 what's at the root of all this? I think both of those things are are involved in it, but I think the real issue going on right now is that we're going through a bottleneck in you know in society on the planet. All of the social structures that we look to are in one way or another collapsing, whether it's economic structures or religious or political structures. And in fact, our environmental foundation is 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 really in collapse at this time. And the old ways of doing things, the old ways of seeing the world and thinking, aren't working anymore. And so we're being forced, we're we're being pushed through and forced to change our worldview, to change how we see ourselves in the world, to have this paradigm shift. And in doing that, we're opening up levels of perception that have always been there. They're just not been used in a long time. 
And as you say, these events have always been there. We just haven't been paying attention to them. We've been suffering inattentional blindness where we only see the things that we're conditioned to see. But the rest of it has been there, and the conditions are really forcing us to open our eyes and pay attention more. Inattentional blindness. Yeah, Colin, can you expand on that a little bit? Because you talk about inattentional blindness in, in the book, and how does that work exactly? Well, it really is, um, you know, seeing something uh, that the subconscious uh, it, it actually does react in some fashion to a, a, an item or an event that we, we're not uh, deeply structured with any kind of evolved, in any evolved sense, to acknowledge it or to see it in our conscious minds. Uh, you know, it's like looking through a person, a family member who's right in front of you, um, you know, in a, in a crowded room, in in an unusual kind of environment. But if I might just say, Richard, that um, you know, on the back end of what Cynthia was saying there, in I think acknowledging, as most people do now, in the sciences and the study of human behaviour, that we are involved. Uh, because we have to be in a paradigm shift. As Cynthia was saying, we are clearly at a crossroads here. There are only so many moves on the chessboard, and I think we've played most of them. You know, we're, we're at a very critical point where if we intend to stay with nature's journey, uh, we have to make our minds up who we want to be. Um, you know, the paradigm shift that uh, is underway. You know, we 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 tend to talk about paradigm shifts and the tendency to look at scientific and technological trends that usher in new thinking. Uh, and a great deal of what we're discovering, however, does not represent a change in science and technology. It represents a change in humans. You know, new information which engages the mind, uh, invents, uh, engages the emotions, and you know, emotional shift is what pushes people to expand. Each person who has uh, experienced a high strangeness event holds a small piece of a larger picture, and it's time, I think, to put those pieces together. It's not about what we can theorize or prove. It is about um, what we experience and how we feel. It's about the change, changes our experiences create within us and, and uh, how that alters the way we see and interact with the world. We are at a turning point, and people's personal stories, I think, are more important than ever. It's all part of this transition uh, that is underway, and what's playing out through the paranormal and high strangeness events, uh, I think we can expect to see accelerate further because nature's systems are under such stress. Human and natural infrastructure um, is, is at a kind of crashing point. You know, we see that in our climate. Um, that's the natural one, which many think we've had a, a considerable hand in. Uh, in population is seven billions, you know, uh, and that's kind of well beyond the threshold at which can be sustained. Uh, political and religious strife is all around us this very evening as we speak, you know, with you in Toronto. And uh, the earth changes solar activity. It's all there. It cannot be denied. Uh, we simply are, as we say, the book says, on the edge of reality. Yeah, I, I think we all, many of us have this sense, it's deep down in our gut, uh, that something wicked this way comes, uh, mm -hmm. to quote Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can't necessarily put our finger on it, but it, I mean, we are in the midst of it, these, this terrible, some may call it 
uh, you know, cataclysmic event that's coming our way, that's staring us in the face. Others, maybe, and this is what the Mayans perhaps were talking about, when this a very painful birthing process. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what, what, how do we come out the other side? If this is a birthing process, let's go with that analogy because I think there's a little more hope in that one uh, than, you know, a cataclysmic, uh, some cataclysmic event, a planet killer, if you will. What, what do we expect coming out the other side? Well, um, I, I, I think it's a great opportunity to get to answer that uh, by uh, making a very brief statement here. I think that needs to be said. Uh, Cynthia and I um, co-authored also the uh, For the Complete Idiot's Guide series of books, the 2012 book. Uh, we were not experts in the Mayan um, prophecy. Uh, we uh, studied for some considerable months in research for writing the book. And what we certainly um, discovered was that the Mayan elders uh, never, ever did uh, relate their prophecy as the end of the world, uh, which, of course, we know, um, you know, the movie, the Hollywood movie did. And, uh, and the media kind of jumped on it and made a lot of uh, the fun and fun of the Mayan elders themselves, you know, really discredited them greatly. But 2012, as seen through the, the scientists of their day, studying astrology and astronomy, happened. It happened and is still happening. You know, what, what the Mayan um, predicted at the end of that 25,000-year period was exactly what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And it's, it's continuing to happen. It, it was, uh, you know, the end of a, an, uh, of a period of time, natural and man-made, and a transition to a newer uh, period. And as you were you know, saying there, now, where, where, where do we come out the other side? Well, I personally think that uh, the real nub of this is, uh, is basically uh, the mirror that is now being placed in, in front of every single human being. You know, what we're looking at here and have to look at is, as individuals, uh, we, we've got to find a place. We've got to be able, to somehow or other, to get on the same page and to respect one another, um, dare I say, love one another, you know, as we, as we uh, struggle with the most, you would think, the most simple thing to actually, uh, you know, love one another. And it is this big, huge struggle uh, to do so. Um, but I, I think that that really is, that's the nub of this, is to, we've got to come through the, the, the um, deception and the lies the lies and deception, which is just a hallmark of government, it would seem, of politicians. You know, we've got, this has got to end. This has got to end, and we've got to find somewhere a place where we can provide hope for our children. And that does not come uh, from the past period that we're leaving now, thank goodness. Well, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead, Cynthia, sorry. Well, just to tag on to that, I mean, really what we're entering into is a stage where we join our, our, our mind and emotions and, and use our intention in the most positive way possible and understand that our intention has more um, force in the world than we realize. Where, where do you think then that the, the UFO phenomena, crop circles, uh, orbs, uh, where do these fit in? Uh, what are we to make then 
uh, in light of what you just said about this, you know, expansion of global consciousness, or certainly the need for this uh, evolution in global consciousness, this this rocky, you know, road that we're heading on, uh, that we're traveling along now. Where do the where do UFOs and, and orbs and crop circles fit into all this? I think what it's squeezing both of those subjects. What I think uh, they are doing, and others also, they're really um, placing us through a fine filter. They're squeezing out of us. Uh, those better elements, and they're also tasking us with um, developing, maturing uh, the intuitive, the sixth sense, that that you feel, uh, as Cynthia was saying, that you know that you think of a person, the phone rings, you have a thought which feels unnatural to you, and and some people will question it as being their own, and others will simply react to it. Um, uh, but uh, this is kind of where it gets uh, a little bit more um, unusual. And, and uh, starting with the crop circles, I think that's probably the place to go. That's where I started. Uh, those interactions that I was referring to earlier, I'll give you a couple of very quick examples. You'll see exactly what I'm, where I'm coming from. Um, this is a Tai Chi instructor now I'm referring to who one day several years ago now decided with his younger brother to uh, manufacture, make, uh, a flower of life crop circle. Uh, his brother was ill this particular night, and they were unable to, to get out in the fields to manufacture it. But in the very field that they had planned to do so was an enormous, larger than they had intended to make, uh, flower of life of the same design appeared that particular night. There are others, uh, much more uh, extraordinary, much more bizarre, where we've now traced both ends of, of a of cascading uh, sequence of thoughts and, and events, uh, starting with a dozen, actually 11 women who uh, had planned to do a meditation night. They hadn't chosen the place or what they would meditate on, but they finished up in a field close to Stonehenge in central southern England. This is in detail in the book with others. Um, and they meditated, uh, strangely, all agreeing on a particular pattern that came to them independently during that sequence and requested it in their meditation. Some people will call it prayer, but I'll just stick with meditation for now. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a thought process and a transmission. That design, and in the very field where they were stood, the design appeared, and it appeared and was manufactured by a young man, uh, Matthew Williams is his name, um, who was watching television uh, just a normal evening, and suddenly got an urge and a design in his head, which he thought he could manufacture. He went out, followed his nose in his motor car, finished up in the very field where the, the women were transmitting through that process for the very design that he then basically accommodated in that complete process. There's not a lot of difference between, in my view, and the work that we've done here, um, as, you know, uh, executed by people like Dr. Stephen Greer uh, and others, many others, who have vectored in position by another mind process, a UFO in the sky, 
flashing lights at that UFO, at that single light source in the sky, and it then reacting to them, and I've been present myself to see this, as of many of your listeners, I'm sure, one flash, two flash, three flashes, and on, and the light in the sky is responding to it. So there's very little difference, but what it is is interaction and the engagement of a higher part of our minds. And I think that that really goes a long way with where the book takes you. So let me see. This is, this is interesting because if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, not me wanting to put words in your mouth, but th- I'm, this is fascinating. Are you suggesting then that the crop circle phenomena, the UFO phenomena, may not be extraterrestrial in nature? Uh, it may simply be uh, a... Uh, I don't know, a, a, a reflection or a, a, a product of our own minds. Or, th- that is correct, uh, I, I'm suggesting that it might be that, or an engagement of our mind by that as one source. In other words, it, yes, it could well be that this is a program run on Earth by humans, uh, in other words, uh, um, some kind of mind control function, it is perfectly possible. We don't go because we were unable to go as far as to what is the source? What is the source of this intelligence? That's the only criticism I've heard, and I only had that one from one person with the book, was that we don't nail the source. Well, if I, you know, if we were able to do so, we would have done so. I certainly don't feel in any position to be able to say, this is God, you know, this is extraterrestrial, Uh, This is our own minds. What we can say is what we have said, and that our minds are positively part of this process. But it isn't all to do with us. You know, one one questions what consciousness itself is, and we say there really isn't an adequate definition when when one is talking about our mind and how it works. Consciousness is the act of awareness, the substance of form, and the force through which we experience life. It is personal and it is collective. It directs us. It's carried on energy and yet it it isn't energy. It's something beyond. And so when we extend our awareness and intent to use that force of our consciousness, we can manifest and change our surroundings. I think. All right. uh, I got to ju- sorry to we- jump in here, Colin. I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, we'll uh, take a time out. Come back and uh, continue uh, to talk about. All of these things that are on the edge of reality. Colin and Cynthia Andrews, stay with us. Colin Andrews and Cynthia Andrews, uh, stay with us. On the edge of reality, hidden technology, powers of the mind, quantum physics, paranormal phenomena, orbs, UFOs, harmonic transmissions, and crop circles. And uh, you were talking about uh, what appears to be the connection with our own uh, psychic abilities uh, and the UFO phenomena, the crop circle phenomena. And I couldn't help but notice that you've got another a quote on the back of your book from uh, Grant Cameron, of course, a noted Canadian ufologist uh, and a uh, gentleman who's been on this program many times. And on this program, uh, uh, Grant, and also, of course, before the citizen hearing uh, in, in Washington back in, uh, in April, Grant was talking about this connection between ESP tele- telepathy and the, the UFO phenomena. And he, t- and he told the story of uh, uh, having a conversation with Dr. Eric Walker, who was the, the uh, former president at, uh, of Penn State University, no less, and 
uh, was involved, I believe he was the chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis. And, and uh, so I had great connections with a lot of military brass. Uh, he was friends with Vannevar um, Bush. Uh, and so Cameron was talking to him about UFOs and, the, and also Walker's uh, connection, alleged connection with this MJ-12 group. Uh, Majestic Twelve, and he asked. And he, so he asked Walker. Cameron did. You know, what can you tell me about MJ Twelve? Uh, and and did you have contact with aliens? And 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 how do these flying saucers operate? And Walker told him, or asked him, how good is your sixth sense? How much do you know about ESP? And he okay. said, unless you know about it and how to use it, you will not be taken in. Uh, I, okay. Referring to Majestic Twelve. That's it. Yeah, that that's a very very powerful um, uh, quote from from Grant. Um, yeah, I mean I, that that kind of says it all, and and I, I very strongly uh, agree uh, with that with that statement. Uh, sixth sense, uh, the maturing development to uh, to a much more uh, spiritual um, entity, which you know is is clearly what we we have to evolve to be, uh, is is what's at stake. I think that that's there. It's in the offing. It's on the horizon. But we're we're far from there. Uh, we are far from there. I th- I think um, if if I may just kind of mention a, a, an experience that Cynthia and I had, um, which kind of really well, it blew me away. That's for sure. Uh, you know, the, remember, you know, I'm I'm the engineer that's kind of struggled with a lot of this up and certainly up until about 20 years ago. You know, always looking for the yes, no, black, white, you know, very straightforward um, problems because, of course, engineers resolve problems. Uh, this, this has been very different. This whole research uh, uh, route has been very different for me and at times uh, difficult. You know, when you have a, an experience, many of the others were telling me of their experiences, and then I began to have them myself once I got involved with this in 83. Um, it, it's bizarre stuff. And, you know, I, I had left my first marriage uh, disintegrated uh, as much as a result of this work as anything. Um, you know, I left my country in England and came to America um, uh, back in the early 90s. And uh, Cynthia and I met and obviously eventually married. And we were together asleep. Neither of us had a home at that time. You know, we, we had we were both in our second marriages, and we were asleep in her mum's house and uh, fast asleep. Middle of the night, um, we both woke instantaneously. An event took place with me first. I, I couldn't move, and um, it was just an amazing, uh, I can only term it as a download of very pure, uh, very accurate, detailed information related to patterns appearing, uh, crop to, the crop patterns appearing in order in very fast movie in front of my eyes across the landscape around Stonehenge in southern England. And these formed an equilateral triangle. It gave me the placement of Stonehenge with regard to that and how important that geometry was uh, for the future. And uh, just as if something turned down that connection that I was having with something, um, I, felt it, I felt it changing, and I, could be, I began to move again. I could move. I looked across at Cynthia. Um, 
uh, wanting to talk to her, basically wake her and tell her about this. Her eyes are open. Uh, maybe I should just leave her to tell you what what happened uh, from her perspective. Yes, Cynthia, take it away. Well, we actually woke up simultaneously, and I could see, you know, I, I, I energetically I could see him expanding. It was like he just became larger than life, and, and I'm lying there kind of feeling the energy coming from him, and and then it deflated, and when he deflated, I expanded, and in the expansion that I had with and this interaction with a light, and I can only say that it was a light that was alive. It wasn't the way that we look at light. It was living light. Um, I received the same information he had received about designs in the landscape. I received about geometries in the body, um, starting with a triangular geometry between the palms of the hand and the third eye and the forehead. And and that when you that using this geometry in different ways, you activated different parts of your of your awareness and your perceptions and so it was a fascinating thing that both of us received the exact same information him for the landscape and me for the body all right uh there's that music coming up again so we'll step away for a moment come back and continue to talk about high strangeness i do want to get to the the norwegian spiral anomaly back in i guess it was 2009 and uh, how that might all figure into this and time permitting i want to talk about orbs as well because this is something that uh, has started to sort of gnaw uh, at my consciousness i'm starting to find more and more orbs showing up in my photographs floating around my head and different loved ones find out what that might mean as well back with more of my conversation with colin and cynthia andrews on the edge of reality Colin and Cynthia Andrews uh, with us, uh, investigators of the high strange and uh, uh, paranormal phenomena we're talking about. Uh, well, just hidden technology, powers of the mind, uh, orbs, UFOs. I want to talk about the, the Norwegian spiral uh, back in 2009, appeared in the night sky over Norway, uh, and uh, was photographed from northern Norway and Sweden. And this had this blue beam of light, grayish spiral emanating from one end of it. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the significance of that was, the Norwegian spiral? Well, this is another one, uh, regrettably, where one has to say one doesn't know what it actually was. The Russians, as I, I think you'll, you'll know, the Russian military did claim that it was a rocket that it, they had lost control of uh, that uh, basically effectively disintegrated as it rose up into the atmosphere. Um, I uh, have a very good friend in the space industry, uh, uh, a NASA contractor, uh, a PhD in this business, and um, he was one of those who certainly uh, easily convinced me that there was much more to it than that, and that in fact, it could not have been uh, the rocket as explained by the Russians, uh, because the um, the spiral itself was a very even uh, um, symmetrical spiral uh, as the object rose into the atmosphere uh, if that had been a rocket rising up through the atmosphere into thinner layers of the atmosphere the actual thickness width of each of the spiral rotations would have widened uh, enlarged it non-symmetrical uh, is what you would have and, and what has seen on many other um, uh, catastrophic launchings uh, in this country and in, in other countries. Uh, what I think 
put the feather in the cap for me was shortly after I'd had this or was having this discussion uh, with the scientists concerned um, when another one showed up in China and a further one in England and another on the uh, west coast, I beg your pardon, east coast of Australia. Um, and so we, we don't know what, what they were. Um, we felt um, there was some debate between us on this, whether the new technologies should be inserted in the book. Um, but, you know, when we, we have secret technology uh, challenging, uh, obviously challenging a challenged system, an Earth system, uh, one, I think, can anticipate uh, other new phenomena to appear. Uh, this may well have been uh, a, one of those new phenomena. Uh, there are others we, we refer to in the book. One of the most bizarre, uh, where, which we still continue to get reports of, um, as weird as it sounds, as our black plastic bags. That's exactly what they look like until they morph into orbs, into uh, oblongs, to um, circles, and uh, they, they change in size. They react, they have manner and behavior. Uh, the one that Cynthia and I saw ourselves uh, uh, was interaction with some crows, some black rooks. I'm not sure what you would call them in Canada. We call them crows, uh, yes. Crows, crows or yeah. ravens. That's right, yeah. Well, we, we were watching this, this whole thing unfolding, and no more than a couple of hundred feet away from us, um, and the birds were dive-bombing this object uh, until it, it shrunk in size, and uh, shot off up into the sky. So, you know, these high strangers events uh, are escalating. Uh, they are, you know, completely outside of the conventional books that uh, many of us have studied over the years. So I don't know what, I don't know what the spiral, the Norway spiral was, uh, but there were uh, four others uh, very much uh, like it. You hinted that it may be some sort of hidden technology. Are we talking about some sort of a harp uh, type a situation? Yes, I think I think that that is that is quite possible. You know, I, I'm, I'm continuing to be um, uh, researching the the chemtrail uh, phenomena that's going on. We did include that also in the book because we were able to prove that uh, they exist and that they are real. Uh, you know, a, a number of individuals have broken ranks, uh, whistleblowers within the programs concerned. The Australian situation is one where, um, uh, you know, unusual clouds uh, continue to be seen. They have now for four years. The radar patterns, which I first got involved in myself in the study of this um, three years ago, uh, I was able to... to find the correlation with the patterns that appear on their national uh, radar across um, Australia uh, and relate those particular patterns within days to extreme changes in weather conditions. It, of course, denied by the uh, Australian government uh, to, to be anything they were aware of and not involved in, and indeed they even explained the radar themselves in very conventional terms. If you look at the web, their website now, this is the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia, acknowledging there is still to this day an unknown interference, uh, is what they're calling these patterns. There is an acknowledgement from Queensland government that they are uh, involved in weather modification programs. And so 
you know, the, these things uh, are, are part and parcel of our changing environment, some good and some not so good. Well, whenever you have uh, – several years ago, there were a, a bunch of uh, scientists who gathered down. I think it was in San Diego, and they talked about, you know, the need at some point in the future – uh, they t- they call it geoengineering. The need yeah. in the future to to dump, uh, I don't know, millions of of tons of uh, aluminum particulates into yeah. the atmosphere to forestall yeah. whatever. So what I, yeah. my feeling is that whenever scientists gather and tell you we we need to do this in the future, that's them basically tipping their hats, saying we're doing it now, but we're telling yeah. you we're going to do it in the future. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And. Uh, uh, it, 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 I don't think there's any question that the, the, that level of uh, particulates in the atmosphere and, of course, eventually on the ground is uh, not doing the health of many, many people any good whatsoever. But their program they, that they, they seem to be involved in is to increase reflectivity of harmful um, um, penetration of, uh, of rays from the sun, ultraviolet and so on, into our atmosphere and to try and attempt to reverse um, global warming would seem to be what they are about. And damn uh, the collateral but, damage. <laughs> uh, absolutely right, Richard. Well, you know, there's a couple of things. There's two things going on here. One, we're talking about uh, uh, this global consciousness, an expansion in global consciousness, an evolution, if you will, in global consciousness and our, and, and, uh, uh, our, our perceptions uh, of what we, what we now label as paranormal. Uh, are, 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 are intensifying. And then the other thing that's happening is these, I guess the Gnostics called them the archons, or the, you know, the rulers of this world, uh, making war on us. You know, they call it a war on terrorism, but the enemy is really, it seems to be us, you know, the useless eaters, as Kissinger is said to have called us. I'm wondering, yeah. are the two things related? Uh, I... You know, it's a hard one. It's very much a hard one. What I find is that I'm interested in all of those fields. I get angry with them. At times I find it difficult to to deal with the the internal emotion that peps up inside of me. You know, the disrespect the politicians and some of these multinationals have for us, the eaters, as as you were saying, is very difficult to deal with. But because there is such an overwhelming um, number of problems on our planet, I don't think we can each individually uh, take on the battle of each of them. You know, I, I felt some years ago that, um, you know, you choose your battles and uh, get in, go, you know, step forward and go 100% for what it is you believe or what it is you, uh, you're, you're interested in. And so I, I've kind of stuck with the sciences, but... Um, I'm very prepared to think well outside the box, as you can see in the book, one has had to do so. And eventually, what you see as being real and important, beyond these creatures that run a lot of these organizations that we're referring to here, um, you know, there's something much more powerful. these, These people are individuals. Some are faceless. They are numbers on a door in the Pentagon and so on. You know, these, these are uh, as frail as anybody else when it comes down to our climate, when it comes down to the higher mind, when it comes down to whose program ultimately is at work. So um, 
I, I think there's just too much to take on board as an individual right across the whole gambia of you know human activity. Right. I'm just wondering, I guess, uh, let me throw this out to Cynthia, and, and we're just in the final moments here, but I guess what I'm getting at is these... Uh, who's ever in charge, you know, if you want to call them the unelected oligarchs or what have you, pick your term. They they fear they are losing control. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we are, we are voting with our feet. We are walking away from many of the old institutions. They are crumbling around us. Uh, and, and part of the reason, as you both have pointed out, that we are sort of walking away is because of this evolution in our consciousness and that we are, we are realizing uh, that, that our re- the reality is not what's being spoon-fed to us like, uh, like so much pablum by the, you know, the mainstream media. There's something else going on backstage. We're, try- we're starting to wake up to that. Uh, and these, I use the term archons, uh, are, are scared to death that, that they're uh, losing control. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that it goes right back to what you had said earlier about Grant Cameron and the idea that our psychic abilities and when we really activate who we are as individuals, when we connect with each other and activate our intent, we are more powerful than they really, um, than they can come to terms with. And when we walk away from the systems and we create something in its place that, that doesn't come from the same foundation, I think it's very scary. And I think that's why all the hidden technologies exist to try and control populations, to try and control our minds. I think mind control is the biggest thing, um, you know, that, that is in development right now. One of the chapters in the book that we put in is what the military is doing with mind control right now, and it is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's, it is. It's beyond most of our capacity to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, we're almost out of time here, but when I was, I kicked off the show talking about, for example, this horrible shooting at the Washington Navy Yard and, and, and all the similarities that you see with, with that and many of the other mass shootings. And, and, and one can't help but wonder whether, you know, this mind control program, uh, you know, plays a part in these things, but mm-hmm. one almost hesitates to bring it up, certainly in, you know, in, yeah. in, uh, in, yeah. in certain companies. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I be yes. Uh, it's it's a very worry. It's one of the most worrying aspects to this work. You know, I don't think we've probably time to go into you know how the motor and mirror neurons work in our in our minds and our brains and how powerful we are as human beings. You know, the remote viewing, for example, which is a you know, fairly large section in the book. You know, it, it, it's it's a very um, very powerful tool, and we're all able to do it. Uh, with training, um, it, it, it's an extraordinary skill, but misused and abused. And unfortunately, that uh, you know always seems to finish up that way uh, when it comes to military application. Um, so yes, I'm with you absolutely, Richard. It's um, it, it's a worrying a worrying side to this. Well, Colin and Cynthia, I really appreciate your time tonight. Congratulations on on the edge of reality. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you Thank very you much so indeed. Much. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure talking. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. The website, your portal to The Conspiracy Show is www.richardserret.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, friends. Welcome aboard. Good to have you with us. 
Uh, just before I left uh, uh, for Greece, I think this past summer, my technical producer, Tim Spreen, uh, was telling me about this uh, movie that he had seen, this documentary called Room 237. And uh, Tim, you, 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 and uh, I, I hadn't seen it, hadn't heard of it. Uh, and he said, yeah, it's, it's all about the, uh, the hidden messages in the, uh, the, the, the movies of, of Stanley Kubrick, in particular, of course, uh, The Shining, which was uh, a 19, I believe it was a 1980 uh, uh, movie that came out, an adaptation of Stephen King's uh, movie. You remember Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, this couple uh, are um, basically uh, snowed in at this, uh, in this hotel. It actually exists. It's in uh, Colorado. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us from time to time, um, well, regularly on the program, has spent... Uh, a great deal of time there investigating. It's it's very uh, it's a very famous hotel, haunted, and uh, uh, anyway, it's a you know horrific uh, situation that happens to this family. Jack Nicholson, of course, goes absolutely bonkers. Uh, but but many people have different theories as to what you know what Kubrick was trying to tell us in that film, uh, and not only that, in others. And I and I have talked to. Um, uh, uh, Another uh, filmmaker, Jay Widener, I believe, uh, who has explored this who, uh, this theme, the hidden messages in the films of Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick was a very, very interesting uh, cat, to say the least. Didn't do a lot of interviews. Maybe one, I think, with the media in his entire career, uh, which has sort of led to, you know, a lot of speculation as to who is he working for and, you know, uh, did he really... Uh, was he the man responsible for uh, faking the 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 uh, the, loon, the lunar landing, the moon landing, Apollo eleven, uh, filming it on a soundstage and so forth? So there's this whole mystique uh, surrounding Stanley Kubrick and his films, and uh, so then I, I watched Room Two Thirty Seven, and it is it's a magnificent uh, film, and if you haven't seen it, I really uh, encourage you to do so. So. I thought, well, we've got to get this filmmaker on and talk about it uh, because we've talked about, you know, the fake lunar landings and we've talked about some of the other things, you know, Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut. Was he, was he sort of the Illuminati's designated filmmaker and was he trying to, you know, tell us that this, was what, this is what's going on in the world with that film, his final film, uh, before he died? So a great pleasure, having said all that, to welcome Rodney Asher, the director-editor of the film Room 237. As I say, a documentary exploring the signs, symbols, meanings, metaphors, uh, and it includes five uh, very different people who have sort of discovered within Kubrick's The Shining uh, all these different meanings. Rodney Asher is the winner of the 2012 Fantastic Fest Award for Best Director Documentary and the 2012 IDA Creative Achievement Award for Best Editing. Working with producer Vernon Chapman, he edited Andy Kaufman's first comedy album, Andy and His Grandmother. A previous work includes numerous independent shorts, including the infamous The S from Hell, as well as TV commercials, internet quickies, and music videos. Rodney Asher, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations again on, uh, on Room 237. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, interesting uh, sort of subtitle uh, for Room 237 is uh, Many Ways In, No Way Out. Can you explain sort of the subtitle for those people who haven't seen the movie? Sure. Well, you know, one of the central metaphors you know, of The Shining is the labyrinth. 
And one of the um, sort of exciting things in researching this project, um, you know, with my partner, producer Tim Kirk, was, you know, we started finding so much research that people were doing into, you know, the secrets of The Shining. And, you know, we were very excited to explore them, but we took a step back at one point and said, are we sure we want to do this about The Shining? Is there maybe another film that's generated more of this stuff? And as we looked around, you know, we looked at 2001, we looked at Eyes Wide Shut, we looked at Mulholland Drive, you know, a handful of other films. Nothing, you know, sort of has generated nearly as much, you know, speculation and inquiry as The Shining did. So we were, you know, very excited to stay on course and to stay with The Shining, you know, and, you know, one of a hundred reasons, you know, that seemed to confirm that choice was that in some ways, you know, Room 237 and The Shining are very similar films in that, you know, they're stories of people lost in a maze. Now, we should explain uh, the, you know, the, the name of the film, uh, Room 237, in the hotel, and how that sort of, you know, what is the connection between that room and the supposed fake lunar set that Kubrick supposedly created? Sure. Well, I mean, that's all, you know, Jay Widener's, um, you know, theory. And he's made two DVDs. I think he's working on a third now, you know, just exploring Kubrick in himself, and he's written a lot about it online. Um, you know, the... The shortest version, if we're just talk, talk, if we're only talking about the number itself, is that I guess in nineteen, you know, in the late seventies when when they were putting together The Shining, the textbook number, the the textbook um, figure for the distance between the Earth and the Moon is two hundred and thirty-seven thousand miles, and you know, one of the main one of the main questions when people look at things that have changed from, you know, shining the book to shining the movie is, you know, the name of that is the number of the room where, you know, all the worst in the hotel happens, you know, kind of the black heart of the hotel. And in the book, the number was 217, um, and he changed it to 237. So, um, you know, there's been a, there's long been a story that you know, the owners of, I guess this would have been the Timberline Lodge, which is the hotel that they shoot an exterior of that represents the over, that o- represents the overlook, and a handful of the shots wanted them to change the number because they had a 217, and they were afraid that, um, you know, guests would get a little freaked out by staying in, in such an infamous room. Um, Jay says that's not, in fact, not the case. But whether or not it is, you know, there's, uh, you know, a limitless number of alternate room numbers they could have given it. So, you know, it makes you think about the significance of the number 237. I know um, I look at it, and it seems like sort of perfectly wrong number, like whether it's a prime number or a Fibonacci number, that it's like unbalanced in a way that that, that makes it feel very wrong. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, we called this film room 237 is there's so many mysteries about concerning that room in the movie not the least of which and this isn't something that i think gets talked a lot about when people are are discussing the movie but sort of the central event of the film is when danny goes into the room 
Um, and he comes back out, you know, with his sweater torn and he's sucking his thumb and he's obviously been through something traumatic. What we never see or even hear described, um, at least not from Danny's mouth, what happened in that room, which is so unlike, you know, conventional filmmaking. You know, they may make it a mystery, but they would reveal it at the end. But Kubrick never reveals it, you know, just like... Um, you know, that black and white photo at the end, you know, in some ways it seems like it's being presented, you know, as if it's, you know, the rosebud moment from Citizen Kane, you know, kind of a skeleton key that will, you know, help you decode the rest of the movie. But that photograph and that date at the end, you know, July 4th, 1927, does nothing of the kind, you know, it, it, it launches you into a new mystery. And you mentioned Danny, and of course he's wearing this Apollo sweater, uh, yeah. And then there's the, and, the room key itself, uh, you know, that, that, that says room in big capital letters, R-O-O-M, and no, room number 237. Uh, and as Widener has pointed out, you know, there's only, only a, 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 you can only come up with uh, two words that have those letters in them, and that's moon and room. So the key on the tag, uh, the key or oh, the yeah, tag, no, it says moon room. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's noticed so many amazing details in the movie. Um, but I, I'd also go on to say that um, ghosts don't necessarily need room keys. <laughs> Fair enough. It, 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 it Fair enough. Well, what is it about uh, a, a Kubrick? Um, I mean, well, let's talk about The Shining. I mean, it's it's probably the, the most famous horror film ever made, when, when, arguably. Um, I mean, it's studied at universities. Uh, many books have been written about it. Um, I mean, there's academic analysis that goes on about this film. What is it about The Shining? Well, I mean, like I said, there's mysteries in it that never get revealed. You know, and I often compare it to the movie The Sixth Sense, which is a good little horror movie. But you know, I remember, you know, you know that the, the you know the moments of the movie, and you know. We figure out who's a ghost and who's not and what's been going on, you know, in the entire course of the film. And I left that movie satisfied, and I enjoyed it. I never really thought about it again and was never curious to revisit it. But because Shining leaves so many details unresolved, it nags at you, you know, and you get called back to it thinking that, you know, this is going to be the time... This is, this is going to be the viewing where it's going to finally make sense. Um, and in a way, it's kind of maddening. You can't. Um, you know, I also look at it and compare it to these other films, you know, that are more plainly symbolic than The Shining. You know, plenty of difficult, you know, European art films, you know, Holy Mountain, um, Exterminating Angel, you know, plainly symbolic, challenging movies, but none of them are as immediately accessible as The Shining. You know, in some ways, it's kind of the perfect sweet spot, you know, between a mainstream entertainment and a challenging, complicated, ambiguous work of art. And now, it's it's more than three decades old, this movie. You know, it came out in 1980, I think it was, or 81. Yeah. So here we are 30 years later. So why why a documentary about sort of the hidden meanings in that movie now? Well, you know, we found that people are thinking about the show more now than ever. You know, Jay Widener is one of them and four other folks. Um, and except for Bill Blakemore, who 
you know, wrote his, wrote down his thoughts about The Shining in the late 80s. Everybody was doing it recently. And that was a question, you know, that we found really interesting. You know, why, why is this movie some sort of time bomb that took 30 years to go off? But, you know, if you notice, next week, and coincidentally enough, the Room 7 DVD comes out on the same day as Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. You know, so he's been thinking about those characters, too, and finally spurred to action. You know, we don't, you know, I see 237 as, you know, a symptom of some sort of group obsession <laughs> about The Shining that just seems to be spreading. Uh, we'll uh, take a time out and come back with Rodney Asher, a director editor of Room 237, as we examine the hidden messages in the films of Stanley Kubrick. Stay with us. Rodney Asher is with us, director, uh, editor of the documentary Room 237, which examines uh, some of the countless, uh, well, uh, conspiracy theories, if you will, some of them outlandish, some of them potentially plausible, um, in the, uh, the movie The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, uh, The Shining. And uh, it's... Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the collection here of, of individuals that are featured in the film commenting on this. You mentioned uh, the ABC News correspondent, uh, uh, Bill Blakemore. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Blakemore and how he came in, how came involved, became involved not only in this, in this project, but, uh, you know, an ABC News correspondent uh, who's, you know, totally immersed himself in sort of the imagery, the metaphors, and the hidden meanings in Kubrick's films, spe- specifically The Shining. I find that fascinating. Yeah, well, Bill's amazing. And, you know, I talking with him, you know, I found out that he doesn't really consider himself a film buff so much as just a Kubrick buff. You know, and a lot of his tastes, you know, are, you know, are, you know, very classical, very into Shakespeare, and, um, you know, much more than, you know, other contemporary filmmakers, but something about Kubrick and General The Shining in particular just really resonate with him. And you know, he's he's traveled the world and he's covered international conflict and wars. So when he started to see, you know, sort of allusions to you know cycles of violence and imperialism and and even Native American genocide in The Shining, it really struck him. You know, and he's seen sort of similar things in other Kubrick films. In any case, when he heard a little bit about Full Metal Jacket, he decided to take some time and put his thoughts about The Shining down. You know, he wrote an essay that was syndicated in American newspapers in 1987. You know, a lot of it springs off of sort of the Native American imagery within the movie. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people who read his article um, you know, in school, in film school or in film appreciation classes. And for a lot of people, for a long time, his reading of the movie was sort of seen as the um, sort of symbolic take of The Shining, you know, of record. Um, that the, that being that this was, this was an, an, the, the Shining is about genocide of the uh, Native Americans. Uh, yeah, well, like the Overlook Hotel is, you know, on the graveyard of... Native Americans, and like a lot of people, you know, see Overlook Hotel in some ways, you know, as symbolizing America itself. You know, so that hotel was 
built on a graveyard. You could say the entire nation, you know, was built, you know, on uh, on you know on a gigantic graveyard, you know, in the footsteps of people who came before. And he had a really nice way of. I think this is actually um, somewhat. You know, it might have been like the mother of a friend of his, but you know, people were talking about The Shining, and you know, he's often bringing it up in conversation and somebody sort of crystallized what the movie meant to them, you know, which was sins of the past. And like that really resonates with me thinking about this as a story of unstoppable cycles of violence. And you, both in the small picture, you know, like the Torrance family and how Jack abused Danny before the movie starts, you know, and then it cycles back on again, but then violence within the hotel, violence within America, violence within the world. Um, you know, and Danny is the one, you know, who kind of sees the way to break the cycle, you know, by researching your past and backing out, you know, sort of symbolically in your um, in the footsteps. It's like one of the one of, so one of the things I love about the way Bill talks about the movie is, you know, not only does he see, you know, sort of these shadows of horror and tragedy within the movie, but he also can kind of read. You know, maybe a hopeful message for how to turn it around. The the um, I guess the clues or the hints in the film that what Kubrick was trying to talk about was Native American genocide. Very subtle. I mean, unless you're really paying attention, and I guess not only not until the advent maybe of of uh, videotape and you know VHS, where people were able to first sort of stop and examine the film frame by frame, would you be able to see, for example, uh, that uh, in, 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 on sitting on one of the shelves? is this big can of calame baking powder, this big canister uh, adorned with the image of a Native American sort of in traditional garb. Uh, what are some of the other clues uh, you know, that, that Blakemore points out, that, that, that The Shining is about Native American genocide? Well, there's other lines of dialogue you know, um, you know, from the management of the hotel. There's a ton of actually Native American decor within the film, you know, both the... Um, you know, paintings on the wall, portraits, those gigantic Navajo, um, I think they're Navajo, I could be wrong, um, sort of tapestries that Jack is tossing the tennis ball against. And he compares that in a way that I thought was really striking, sort of Napoleon troops taking target practice, you know, on the when they were, you know, um, when they were in Egypt. You know, that kind of casual, playful, you know, destruction of, with this beautiful ancient, you know, artifact. Um, you know, and it's, there's also a throwaway line that really struck me, where as Danny and Wendy are leaving the hotel and they're running off to the maze, Wendy says, "Loser has to keep America clean." And for any, for, for an American growing up in the '70s, there was that PSA with a crying Indian, which to this day you know, is maybe has some nostalgic camp value. But in the day when that came out, you know, when the, America, the, the Native American was sort of canoeing toward Garden River and he comes up on a, into a clearing and it's this horrible superhighway and somebody throws a pile of trash at his feet and he turns to the camera and, a, and, and cries a single tear. Back then, it just reduced all of us to bawling. It was iconic, absolutely, yes. And when she and when she says "loser keeps America clean," she's totally—it's totally evocative 
with that line because it says keep America clean, you know, and she's calling Native Americans losers. She's also, you know, like at another point in the film, wearing a yellow jacket that has sort of Indian prints on it. And, you know, you could say that in some ways she's coded as a Native American for, you know, when Jack turns on her, you know, and is chasing her with the axe. And the axe itself, you know, Bill sees as a symbol of, you know, westward expansion and clearing the forests. Because in the book, again, um, you know, Jack didn't use an axe. He used a croquet mallet. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and though Jay Widener is the one who, like, really explicitly and had a great way of saying it, it's when you look, looking at details of things that have been changed from the... Oh, we lost you there. Are you still with us, Rodney? His cell phone cut out. Rodney Asher is uh, on the line from, uh, I believe he's, he's in Los Angeles or uh, certainly in California, and the uh, director and editor of a documentary film that came out uh, last year, uh, received a great many uh, accolades and critical praise, also won uh, a lot of awards. It's called Room 237, and essentially it examines uh, the hidden meanings, messages inside Kubrick's the Shining, which of course was the uh, 1980 or 81 uh, film adaptation of Stephen King's novel. Uh, you've probably uh, seen the film a, a couple of times, and it's, it's one of those films that certainly stays with you, uh, but you may not be aware that this film has probably, well, in one article I was reading, uh, it suggested uh, you know, that the, um, the analysis of The Shining, the academic analysis of The Shining, uh, almost rivals, uh, you know, the, the Talmud. Uh, but it's it's interesting. If you talk to Kubrick aficionados, uh, they will, uh, they'll corner you in a room and talk your ear off about the hidden meanings and messages inside The Shining and what their particular theory is. And we're talking with, about those with uh, with Rodney Asher. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the Apollo 11 uh, lunar landing and whether this was Kubrick's confession uh, you know, that he was so conflicted about, uh, you know, staging and filming the uh, the lunar landing on a stage, or a soundstage, uh, that he, you know, he was just dying to, to sort of tip us off to that fact, and that's what The Shining is about, and of course others like Bill Blakemore, ABC News correspondent, a Kubrick aficionado. Um, his take on it is that it's about Native American genocide. Uh, the other The other theory, and there are many, uh, we're only going to touch on a few of them here, is that uh, the, the Shining is really a movie about the Holocaust. Uh, Rodney, explain. Well, this comes from, there's um, one of the people we speak to is Professor Jeffrey Cox, who specializes in, um, in German history, and particularly German World War II history. And there are a couple of things, like, you know, I think like the way that Bill and even Jay Weidner come at it, is first, a single detail comes out that reminds you of something and seems kind of strange and out of place. And then the more you look around, you find more details that you know, kind of sort of confirm that point of view and deepen it and, you know, have more and more allusions to it. And I think the two things that's, that he first, that, that Professor Cox first noticed, one was a typewriter that Jack used. Um, that it was a German brand. It had an eagle on it. Eagle is a symbol of the Third Reich. Um, and he thought about typewriters in general 
And there's a book about the Holocaust, the destruction of the European Jews, and sort of the emphasis of that book is what a bureaucratic process it was. You know, that, um, you know, putting aside the horror of it for a second, think about just administratively what a complicated, gigantic project it was and how many, you know, sort of middle managers and typists and clerks had to be involved in coordinating it. Um, you know, so... The banality of evil. Exactly. You know, so of typewriters, there's a lot of lists, there's a lot of repetition. You know, so there's both Schindler's List, you know, which was, you know, a, a list for good, but there were, you know, so many more of these horrible lists. Um, and... Jeffrey's written a book on the subject um, called The Wolf at the Door, and then he edited another one, an anthology with other people's writings as well. And the typewriter kind of opened it up for him, and he saw that throughout the film, the number 42 kept recurring. And the number 42, among other things, in 1942 was the year where, I forget the name, there was a, I think a council, you know, where the Nazis moved forward with the final solution. And with those two things that sort of put him on that track. And he started looking at the film closer and closer and closer. There's the moment when Jack says, uh, little pigs, little pigs, let me in, not by the hair of your chinny chin chin. And he's channeling the big bad wolf. Well, there's a 1930s um, version of the, um, of the Three Little Pigs that Disney produced. And, you know, back then, you know, Disney, I guess they had a reputation for, um, you know, anti-Semitic imagery in their films. And gosh, if you look at the character that the Big Bad Wolf disguised himself as, you know, it looks like a Yiddish, you know, dorted gentleman and kind of a mean caricature of one. Um, and that's the the version you know, that Kubrick would have seen when he was a little kid, you know, in New York. Um, so these kind of details, you know, accumulate you know, as right. you watch the film. And, right. And, and his thoughts dovetail really nicely with Jeffrey's, I mean, in, in some ways, that, I mean, with Bill's, and in some ways, although we're talking about, um, you know, a different, a different time and a different place, it's sort of the same subject. You, you, uh, you, we were both sort of struggling to figure, it was the Wansi Conference in 1942 uh, where the, the yeah, final yeah, solution yeah. was, was uh, decided on. Uh, the, the other thing you mentioned, again, the typewriter, and of course, uh, you know, what is Jack uh, supposedly working on, you know, the great American novel, and what is he typing over and over and over again, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, which I guess, what, symbolizes, uh, again, this mechanical, uh, mechanical, methodical uh, process by which you know the Jew, the Jews were exterminated in in such a cold and soulless and heartless manner. Yeah, well, when you look at the way that Wendy reacts when she sees that paper, it's kind of played as the most horrifying moment in the film. Yes, yes. Uh, what what do we um, what do we ascribe? Uh, this to I mean, let's crawl inside Kubrick's mind if that's even possible. I mean, I mean, this guy was was said to have an IQ uh, somewhere around two hundred. Uh, you know, absolutely, you know, brilliant. I mean, that, that doesn't even do the justice to describe his intelligence. Uh, and yet, you know, you see in this in The Shining, a lot of things which appear to be um, 
uh, continuity issues, you know, where where uh, they'll, they'll take a shot and on 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 in, in the frame you'll see something, and then when you go back to that shot, it's not there anymore. Uh, so, which is which is sort of fed into this whole, you know, into this, the mystique and the legend. Uh, were they continuity errors, or was Kubrick because of his you know incredible intellect was he using those as symbols? Well, what do you make of that? Tell us. Tell us what you th- what what you think of of what was going on inside Kubrick's mind. Well, I mean, there's well, if we're going to talk about the continuity errors, and certainly it may be that some of them are errors, but there's an awful lot of them, you know. And he's somebody with a reputation for being incredibly methodical for doing a thousand takes. And you know, I've seen reproductions of continuity photos that were taken on set. You know, those little Polaroids they take to make sure that. You know, the pens on the desk were in the right place, you know, from shot to shot to shot. You know, so it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a workplace. Um, like, I was teaching an editing class while I was working on the film. And one thing I liked to do was, you know, we spent, you know, in the first part of the, you know, of, of the year talking about the rules of filmmaking. You know, the um, conventions that they needed to maintain, you know, for the film to look professional. Then I started screening scenes from movies that would break these rules. You know, things like Soderbergh's The Limey, you know, or um, William Friedkin's um, To Live and Die in L.A. And, you know, when you know that the filmmaker is a professional and is experienced and, in fact, you know, is a master, and you see that every technical quality, you know, is at the highest level from the, you know, camera work to the lighting to the design, when you see things that seem like errors, they're at least worth considering as being intentional. All right, listen, we'll take, a, we'll take a time out, Rodney, come back, and maybe we yeah. can talk a couple of those, those uh, seemingly, con- uh, what seem like continuity errors, and in fact may, may in fact be little hints or hidden messages contained in Stanley Kubrick's yep. movies like The Shining. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We're examining hidden messages inside Stanley Kubrick's 1981 masterwork, uh, The Shining. And uh, Rodney Asher is with us, the director, editor of the critically acclaimed documentary Room 237, uh, which features five uh, sort of theories as to what Kubrick was trying to tell us in the movie The Shining. And uh, these range from, uh, well, it was a, uh, a Kubrick's confession that he had uh, uh, faked the, uh, the lunar landing, the Apollo 11 lunar landing, had uh, filmed it on a soundstage somewhere, I guess, in the Nevada desert or where have you. Uh, others contend that it is, in fact, a movie about genocide uh, of the um, uh, you know, American natives. Uh, and still others contend that it is a movie about uh, the Holocaust. Now, we're talking about some of the little, uh, the strange, some call them uh, continuity errors. But if you really pay attention to the film, and again, I mentioned, you know, the advent of, uh, of uh, videotape, the VHS, rather, and, and where people were able to actually, you know, examine the film frame by frame. Um, one of the interesting things I found was Stuart Ullman, uh, the character Stuart Ullman, who is the, uh, the hotel uh, manager. And he's uh, sort of interviewing Jack, Jack Nicholson's character at the beginning of the film. Uh, Nicholson is supposed to be, he and his family are sort of caretakers uh, while the hotel shuts down for the season and through the winter months. And if you look at it sort of frame by frame, Stuart Ullman is making these very bizarre hand gestures. Uh, he's not just, you know, folding his hands as he's seated at the desk. 
he's he's making very peculiar hand gestures. Uh, what do you make of those, Stuart? Oh, sorry, Rodney. <laughs> what do you make yeah. of Stuart Ullman's hand gestures? Well, you know, actually, those aren't called out within the film. Um, is this something you've noticed, or is that I, I had? I just, I was just, just, um, I had made a few notes when I'd watched The Shining again, and I, 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 uh, I just wondered if if you had noticed that, or if any of your, uh, any of the people that you'd commented. Yeah, I know it's not I'm in the movie, in your, it's I'm, not I'm in your documentary, but yeah, I'm excited because this is a new one to me. None of us, none of the folks that um, we talked to brought this up, and I don't think I've come across it. Um, Reading about The Shining. Yeah, well, if what? if if you uh, if you if you if you go back to that scene where Ullman is seated at the desk, uh, he's making some very unnatural hand gestures. Uh, I, I just I, I just I made a note of that, and I just wanted to get your take. I didn't know if you had um, if you had ever discussed that. I knew I know it's not in your documentary, uh, but some of the other um, interesting um, uh, sort of. I don't know. Some call them gaffes. Some call them continuity issues. Uh, you know, did, what uh, what can you tell about us about some of those and the significance? Well, maybe there's a really good one that I had never noticed that Jeffrey Cox called out, where um, when Danny at the beginning of the film is talking to Tony, that there's that we're looking at him through um, past, you know, past the wall, past the door to his room. And there's all these stickers. On the on the on the door, and one of them is Dopey from the Seven Dwarfs. Right, right, right. So he's looking in the mirror and he's talking to Tony, and he gets this vision of blood and horror. And then when he wakes up inside in his room and he's being consoled by the by his mom and his doctor, if you look at the wall behind him, that sticker is gone. And Jeffrey says because at this point he has seen the vision of what's happening and what and what has happened. He's no longer a dope, you know that 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 he's lost a layer of naivete, and that's signaled by you know dopey disappearing. Is there any particular uh, theory that you give more credence to as to what what Kubrick was tr- trying to tell us in The Shining? Is there one that you think is more plausible than than the other? Well, you know, it's hard for me to do because you know, getting into this, my assumption was going to be that. You know, five different people, five different points of view. That they couldn't, that they couldn't all be right, and that there must be at least an idea or two that I could dismiss. Not necessarily as not interesting or not significant, but as probably not Kubrick's intent. But you know, the more you drill down, in a way, it's like you know, impressionist art. But it it it, it, it turn it it kind of dissolves in your hands that I could always find a yes, but no, but maybe kind of justification for any one particular detail that they brought up. I know, like when I was a kid, you know, maybe I was 10, 10 years old when I figured out that the giving tree, you know, was actually about, you know, the sacrifices that a mother goes through for her child and that, you know, that story and, you know, all the kids' stories I had read were working on two levels. You know, I see no reason to think that The Shining, you know, can't be working on five or more. All right, we'll take another time out. This was a short break. Come back, and uh, a few moments remain with Rodney Asher. Oh, just before we go into break, uh, remind us, uh, the DVD release and Blu-ray release of uh, Room 237 is when, Rodney? On September 24th. September 24th, just around the corner. Just around the corner. All right, back with more of my conversation with Rodney and 
Our discussion on Room 237, The Hidden Meanings Inside Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Rodney Asher stays with us as we discuss his documentary film, Room 237, uh, which is an examination of the uh, various theories regarding the hidden messages that may or may not be contained in uh, Stanley Kubrick's horror film, perhaps the most celebrated horror film of all time, The Shining. And um, what, I mean, what has been the, the uh, I guess, the feedback from Stanley Kubrick's camp? I mean, Stanley Kubrick, of course, passed away, but, uh, you know, people that worked maybe on the film or people that worked closely with Kubrick, what do they make of the film, of, of Room 237? Well, I've only talked to one of them in person, you know, which is who's Leon Vitale, who was, you know, Kubrick's assistant, and he played, um, you know, Lord Bullenden, um in Barry Lyndon, um, an amazing actor, and that guy I was really excited to meet and he was initially kind of dismissive of a lot of these ideas we actually had a great roundtable debate him me and Jay White were on the same panel with uh, Mick Garris who directed the um, TV movie version um, and you know it was it was a pretty lively debate and it was funny because you know he would say things like you know the Calumet can wasn't picked because of the Native American imagery but for the color um, which to me still seemed significant that 30 years on, he remembered, you know, this prop, which was, you know, kind of an incidental, um, you know, set dressing, is being picked very specifically, <laughs> you know, for the scene. And even the color red that, it's, that it is, is a color that people have talked about, um, you know, very specifically, you know, as having meaning, you know, throughout his films. Um, no, and his producer, Jan Harlan, was, it was interesting, he was, I, I, I've never spoken with him personally, and, um, and um, you know, he was dismissive of some details, but he confirmed others, um, you know, things about the impossible, almost M.C. Escher-esque landscape within the hotel, and, you know, I'm... Totally respect, you know, his opinion. If if the idea of you know two three seven is that different people see The Shining differently, and if he's going to see it, you know, more differently, <laughs> much 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 differently than us. But even people who are there can't necessarily speak for, you know, what was for choices he made, you know, that were that that he didn't necessarily talk about. You know, people don't always explain every decision they make to everyone that they work with. Um, and there's also, you know, so much to say about, you know, subconscious choices. You know, you pick this actor instead of that one, this costume instead of this, that prop, and they all and the, and, the, and they all add up for, to one thing, um, you know, to, to, to one thing or another. What do you what do you make of the theory that the that the, the Shining is a film that's meant to be seen both forwards and backwards? Uh, in fact, if you were to project it simultaneously with one version being played the normal way and the other being superimposed and run backwards uh, from beginning to inning, uh, from, sorry, from end to beginning, the, the, sort of the resulting images are, are, are quite interesting, uh, you know, the, where certain scenes overlay on, on, on others, and it seems to be, uh, again, uh, you know, able, you're able to appreciate it at a whole different meaning or a whole different level. Again, yeah, that is uncanny that this guy, John Phil Ryan, um, was inspired to do it reading um, something else that um, this guy, the mastermind, had written about it. Um, and 
the idea very loosely was um, when you look at the structure of the film, in some ways it's an inversion of 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, and people have talked about how if 2001 is about the evolution of mankind, um, The Shining is a, de- is a de-evolution, a descent into savagery. And if you just very quickly think about the structure of the film, the beginning of the movie is a tour of these locations that we revisit again later. So for a bunch of reasons, you know, the idea was that maybe scenes at the beginning are meant to be seen like very much um, in juxtaposition with scenes from the end. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, Kubrick is a symmetrical filmmaker, you know, that left and the right of the frame are often very balanced. You know, or you think of a movie like Full Metal Jacket, which is in these really these two distinct pieces you know, that kind of echo each other. So they set up this screening where they projected it forwards and backwards simultaneously superimposed. And the way things lined up just gave everybody the willies. And we do a short, you know, tour through some of the highlights in 237, but I've seen the entire thing projected, you know, with an audience, and their jaw just hits the floor as things happen, like Lloyd the bartender says, you know, women, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. And floating over the frame are the is the young woman and the old hag from room 237. I mean, it, that kind of thing just happens again and again and again as you watch the film. It's it's uh, it, it reminds me of uh, when someone first brought to my attention that if you if you sync up uh, the the Pink Floyd album Dark Side of the Moon uh, and you cue it so that it uh, begins where the uh, I guess the um, Metro Golden um, Mayor Lion in the beginning of The Wizard of Oz. And uh, are you familiar with that? Uh, the, oh, yeah. the synchronicities no, between. I about, I, you know, I thought a lot about that too, and I don't know if it's totally related, but, you know, when I think about that experiment, you know, assuming that it wasn't intentional from the band, and that seems to be, you know, the um, what, what's most likely based on interviews with them, I think it says something just wonderful about. You know, the way storytelling has evolved, long-form storytelling over thousands of years, that, you know, sort of these patterns recur. You know, whether you're writing a long rock album or um, making a movie that, you know, five minutes in, you know, things start to get serious. Fifteen minutes in, maybe there's a reversal of some sort, and that kind of pattern recurs in these different in, in these different works. You know, and you put them together, and it's kind of, you know, eerie and uncanny to see the relationships. Or perhaps it just says it says more about our need as humans to find these patterns, uh, and and uh, you know, it's nothing more than that. It's not coming necessarily from the artist; it's coming from the audience. Yeah, well, I wouldn't dismiss that as something you know, insignificant or uninteresting either. Absolutely not. No, no. Well, Kubrick was was uh, very recalcitrant. He didn't like to talk to the, to the media very much. I mean, I guess he would speak uh, when he had to, when, when, a, when a film of his was being released. Um, and I guess that his, he, 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 he seems to have been a very sort of secretive person. Uh, maybe that's not necessarily true, but that's sort of the image that we're left with because of, you know, his, I guess, his unwillingness to speak to the media. Uh, as that also been responsible for sort of playing into this mystique and the legend surrounding 
you know, the messages that may or may not be in his films? I think so. I mean, well, for, for one part, for, on the one hand, I think he was, you know, smart not to talk too much about the themes and the symbols within his film and to allow the audience to engage with it and to wonder, you know, to answer the questions themselves. You know, there's a quote, you know, where he said something along the lines of, um, you know, the Mona Lisa wouldn't be improved if there was a little plaque underneath saying, you know, she's smiling this way, thinking about, you know, what her lover would have looked like when he was a little boy, because, you know, then there would be <laughs> no reason to, no reason to wonder. Um, though, what's interesting, I guess, you know, if you parse that, is that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't about something in specific, even if he's allowing you to um, look at it how you will. I know this wasn't the uh, the subject matter of, of your film, uh, Room 237, uh, but uh, his last film, Eyes Wide Shut, um, you know, and people talk about the occult symbolism in that in that movie and, and Jay Widener, you know, and he, he's been on my show, we've talked about... Uh, the theory that Kubrick was sort of the Illuminati's designated filmmaker, uh, and that he and this, in, in large measure, was why he was so secretive and didn't want to talk uh, or wasn't permitted, perhaps, to talk. Did you and Jay uh, have those sorts of conversations during the making of the, mil- of the movie? A little bit, and I think, and we've got a little. We we, we have we have a, like a small, we, 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 a very small discussion of that. Is a deleted scene within two three seven, but uh, those themes are much more present in um, you know in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, and I think if you're going to say that, you know, kind of the that 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 kind of stuff might be the equivalent of in Eyes Wide Shut as sort of the moon landing sequence within um, Room two three seven. I know I was excited. This it, it was too late to get into two three seven, but you know I discovered that there were folks who looked at that. There's a there's a scene in two three seven where there's a woman who sees um, a lot of Minotaur imagery within The Shining, and she talks about um, the poster here that looks sort of like a Minotaur, and the word over it is monarch, and she sees that you know as an allusion to you know sort of the um, um, the decadent ruling class, the kings, the, um, I think, like, like um, Stuart Ullman says, royalty estate at the hotel. Um, and there's that, but when you get into, you know, some of the ways that people have been talking about Eyes Wide Shut, uh, with both ideas about the Illuminati or mind control, you know, the program comes up. So I was, you know, very excited to see just within that one poster, there are these two radically different Know, symbolic reads, um, but um, you know we we're only able we we're only able to get so much into two, three, seven, and there were moments where I tried to suggest that what we're seeing in it was only the tip of the iceberg. So, what's next for uh, for you, uh, Rodney? I mean, are you going to uh, pursue other projects that involve uh, symbolism in Kubrick's films? Um. Not at least not in the short term. I'm, I'm I may be trying to do too many things at once. I've got like two or three things that I'm doing at the same time, but none of them are 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 um, specifically about Stanley Kubrick right now. What did uh, what did this kind of 
was, is my big Stanley Kubrick project, at least for at least for right now. Sure. What 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 do we know? What Stephen King um, thought of of Kubrick's reworking of his of his novel? <laughs> he wasn't crazy about it. And why did he say? Well, I, I've heard things. You know, I, I've heard that um, he didn't think it was scary. That he was disappointed that. Um, Kubrick downplayed some of the themes of alcoholism, um, and he's promoting you know his sequel to it now. And he talks about this, the Kubrick film is being cold and unsympathetic to Wendy. Um, now, and it's interesting because he actually you know was so interested in in, in in seeing another version of the Shining as a film that in the '90s he produced and writ and wrote. You know, uh, like a six-hour-long miniseries, a version that's totally different that Nick Garris directed, and it's you know really interesting to you know take a look at them back to back. Indeed. Well, listen, uh, uh, Rodney, I really appreciate your time, and we should also mention once again that the uh, the DVD and Blu-ray uh, a, a release of. Room 237 is uh, coming up in just a few days, September the 24th, and people will be able to pick that up, and I really encourage them to do so. It's it's fascinating. Whether you're a Kubrick fan, whether you just love The Shining, uh, this will give you a whole new insight into the film. Again, Rodney, thank you. Appreciate your time. Oh, sure. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Rodney Asher, the uh, director-editor of Room 237. All right. My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for technical production. Back next week, uh, Don Schmidt, the Roswell investigator, will be along, along with our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network to talk about Roswell deathbed confessions. We'll also touch on uh, Don's new book, uh, which, which talks about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and uh, whether or not that's the real Area 51. And we're working on a few other things, I believe. Uh, very shortly, we'll have Canada's Edgar Casey. Douglas James Cottrell back on the program talking about earth changes, solar storms, the possibility of a financial collapse and so forth. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.